0: Mutation, natural selection, and evolution. It's a Darwinian edition of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand or'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This week, I'm in New York City. There's a few tickets left if you'd like to come see me with Forefront Church, and then uh, the next weekend, I'll be at my own church, Good Samaritan, for the Peacemakers Weekend, and I can't believe it. There are actually people traveling to Tallahassee to be a part. It's going to be really exciting. More about that at the end of the show, but for now, let's get it started. The only reason this podcast exists is because some of you asked me to start it on Twitter. And I got to be honest, I wasn't convinced that uh, it would work. I was really worried that I would go through the work of setting up a web server and an RSS feed and all the rigmarole of actually launching a podcast. And then there would not be enough questions to keep the show going, which turns out to have been a really stupid fear (laughs) because... We have so many questions, we'll probably never answer them all already. This is, in a real way, your show. It's, it's called Ask Science Mike, but you guys are the ones asking the questions. And because of that, you're the ones who guide the conversation. And you don't always guide it the way I want to go. And I'll give you an example. This week's episode is nothing but questions about evolution. In my mind, I've covered evolution so much that there's not much left to say. But... It doesn't matter. The most common question that comes in for the show are questions about evolution. They've actually uh, overtaken the After Dark episode questions now. I get more questions about evolution than sex, and that's saying something. So this week, I'm following your direction. I'm doing nothing but questions on evolution. This could be a total bomb. I hope it's not too nerdy an episode. Uh, Obviously, I love and am very interested in evolution and its intersection with faith. And apparently you are, too, because I have a ton of questions. So, I've never done this before, uh, but this is a themed episode. Nothing but questions about evolution.
1: Hi, Science Mike. I'm kind of interested in one of the issues with the literal six-day creation, and that's the issues of genetics and population size. The idea that a starting population of two, one man and one woman, couldn't provide a genetically viable population just from their offspring. I'd like to know what some of the research is on how many people would actually be needed to start a population. I've also heard some really interesting research on creation in God's image refers to our particular species having consciousness and having Uh, the free thought that we do, compared to a more cognitively limited proto-human species. What are your thoughts on some of this research? And if someone were to want to be really literal about creation, how they would contend with the two people who are supposed to have started our population? Thanks.
0: When I was a kid, Adam and Eve confused me. Because I was in grade school, and I remember sitting in my room reading the Bible and and going through the early chapters of Genesis, and here you had Adam and Eve, and then they had sons, and then you had like stories of more people. I was like, where did these people come from? (laughs) What what in the world? And it didn't take long for me to learn about the birds and the bees and to realize that if there were really only two original humans— the descendants of those humans would have to interbreed very, very quickly in order to produce humanity, and it creeped me out. It really did when I was very young. I mean, sex in general creeped me out, obviously. Girls had cooties at that age, but Adam and Eve were weird. And so I brought that up in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher told me that God probably created more people other than Adam and Eve later. Adam and Eve were just the first two people God created And then someone else told me that uh, early humans lived a long time. And they lived a long time because they were genetically superior to modern humans. And because of that, for them, interbreeding, or inbreeding, frankly, was no big deal. Well, (laughs) let's look at the science of that idea and of Adam and Eve. Obviously, if you listen to the show, if you've heard me on the Liturgist podcast, I don't believe Adam and Eve were literal people. It's not part of my understanding of God or creation at all. But I understand as well, those are really common beliefs in the church. I get that. I get there's a lot of Christians, and I mean a lot of Christians, that believe Adam and Eve are two actual people literally formed by the hands of God. Some other people who accept the theory of evolution believe that Adam and Eve are the first two organisms to have a soul that they evolved, certainly, but they were the first two humans, and still all humans can trace their ancestry to Adam and Eve. Um, Genetic science makes us question that, because for organisms that reproduce sexually, and not all organisms do, by the way, there are plenty of asexual animals who can reproduce via division, for example, but for animals who reproduce sexually, uh, genetic science already has something called a minimum viable population, and that is the, the smallest amount of that organism that can create a genetically viable population over long periods of time. You see, for sexually reproducing complex organisms, inbreeding, especially very close inbreeding, tends to amplify the damaging possibilities introduced by recessive genes and recessive disease Uh, They tend to work against beneficial genetic mutation, and they create non-viable organisms that often can't reproduce within just a few generations. Um, And so with computer models and genetic sequencing, scientists can estimate how many individuals you would need for a given species. Now, this is not like a hard number. For any species, you're not going to get a scientist to give you some specific number or for two scientists to agree exactly on what the best average number is we're not talking about you know an absolute definitive term but but an estimate for humans for example one scientist who you can see his work linked uh, on the show notes at asksciencemike.com as as well as a ton of resources this week on evolution uh, he said that as few as 160 human beings could sustain a viable population for a very long space journey so if we were going to some other star system and back at a high enough speed, you could have viable humans for the entire journey. It would be very important, though, at the end of that journey, they re with a larger population of humans. And that's what I mean by over time. To counteract the effects of inbreeding, you need larger population sizes to last for longer time spans, greater numbers of generations. Uh, and most scientists agree you'd need north of 5,000 humans to have a population of Homo sapiens that's viable over millions of years. Now, we've only been around for completely modern humans for about 100,000 years. Uh, Anatomically modern humans, probably closer to 200,000. But we're still still pretty new kids on the block, um, if I may use an 80s reference. 5,000 is a lot more than 2, obviously. Now there is one theory in genetics and in genetic sciences that at one point we were almost extinct and that means there may have been as few as 30 to 50,000 hominids on the planet that were our direct ancestors about a million years ago and 50,000 sounds like a lot but it's not really again if 5,000 is is like a bare minimum um, 50,000 is low for a species like us, especially today that numbers in the billions. So genetically speaking, two humans wouldn't make a viable genetic population, and we don't even have a framework in genetic sciences under which something as complicated as a human being could sexually reproduce with only two organisms and produce enough diversity to be viable. Sex is an adaptation that allows multi-celled organisms to compete with microbes, microbes reproduce so much faster than we do that sex is a way that we accelerate our mutation rate in order to increase our immunity and competitive advantages against things like bacteria. Which is funny because <laughs> if you look at the way sex emerged, you didn't have like distinct genders at first, for example. Um, and so, for all of the talks of complementarianism and and feminism, uh, one fairly biologically way to view a male is that it is a specialized female, which I think is hilarious. But I understand for those of you who believe Genesis is literal, and you could cite that a couple ways. You could say that God kept introducing new populations of humans as the human population grew, or you can really cite a very powerful idea. That's that God somehow intervened in genetics. If God is real and conscious and has a plan for humanity, certainly God could intervene in DNA. I I don't deny that. I don't think that's what happened, though. I'm open to the idea of an all-powerful God with consciousness and agency, but the clues that were left behind by this creative work we call the universe uh, lead me to different ideas, namely that humans emerged from a long, unbroken line of common ancestry going back to life that emerged on the planet Four billion years ago now in terms of consciousness and what separates us from animals i would point you back to episode one the first episode of the show uh, that i ever did Uh, i talked about animal souls and consciousness and uh, you'll get a full you know i think five or eight minute answer on that in that episode i hope you enjoy that as well Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hi Mike, thank you for everything you do. I'm open to the idea that God created us through evolutionary processes. However, it seems like there's a major flaw in evolutionary theory that random mutations don't seem to be able to account for the incredible diversity of life. It's puzzling to me that there appears to be a lot of evidence to support common ancestry, natural selection, etc., but it just doesn't make sense to me that random mutation was the vehicle that drove all these complexities. Thank you, Stephen. Well, Stephen, your intuition is uh, common. It seems impossible that completely random processes could produce the life we see on this planet. Because it's true, completely random processes could not produce the diversity of life that we see on this planet in the amount of time that life has had to develop. And that doesn't seem to make sense because you've heard over and over that evolution is random. That's false. Evolution is not completely random. Because random mutations can't account for the incredible diversity of life any more than a crankshaft can account for how cars can move. You see, a crankshaft is part of an engine. But an engine has more parts than just a crankshaft. And an engine has to be attached to a transmission that has to be attached to axles, which have to be attached to wheels to move a car Not to mention that that whole system has to be fed by a fuel of some kind. And so in evolutionary terms, random mutation is just one part of the engine of evolution. It exists, it's a factor, but it's not the whole solution. You see, random mutation is part of how DNA operates. DNA has these base pairs, these binary information and protein, uh, and DNA can mutate. That can happen when DNA is being copied or replicated, or it can happen when DNA is bombarded by some kind of environmental factor like radiation. And that mutation can either remove, add, or even shift existing information in DNA. Now, That mutation can do nothing at all in an organism. It can do something very small, or it can do something really drastic. In the case of fruit flies, you can make one little switch in a DNA base pair, one code word in their DNA, and they will grow legs instead of antenna out of their head. So that would be a negative adaptation. And that's the point. These adaptations, once expressed in an organism can be negative or positive. They can reduce the likelihood of replication through a process called natural selection. Natural selection is just a word we use to say that the changes that happen in organisms will be favored or not by an environment. And that means if you have an adaptation that lets you see more light, for example, you might be able to evade predators better and make it more likely that your genes will replicate than another organism you're competing against. But the thing is, natural selection is not perfect. Uh, Genes that don't impair an organism until after they've reproduced aren't really strongly selected against. That's why old age isn't something that natural selection tries to weed out. Uh, The same thing with recessive genes. Things that impair organisms can hitch a ride on very successful genes simply by being recessive. Uh, So that most of the time they don't express and therefore don't get weeded out of the gene pool. Now positive or negative completely depends on the environment. You could look at the leaves on plants as an example here. A broad leaf is a great strategy in a wet environment because it lets a plant get more light from the sun. But if the environment gets dry, broad leaves let out too much moisture. And so a more narrow leaf or even a needle is a better survival strategy. It's not that broad leaves or narrow leaves are universally better. It's that they are more adapted to a given environment. And that's what natural selection does. Natural selection simply tests genes Simply test DNA information for how suited it is to an environment. So you're absolutely right. Completely random processes would not produce life, would not produce all of the diversity and elegance we see in the animal kingdom. But random mutation, when filtered by natural selection, when you have a process that limits out bad information inhibits its ability to reproduce, now you've got a recipe for life. And another question that came in via email. Hey Science Mike, this is a long question, but something that has been on my mind. I went to a Bible college, and in a science class we were talking about irreducible complexity and compound traits. I'm quite sure you've heard of it. The professor talked about a woodpecker as an example of this and how there was no way that natural selection and evolution through time and chance could lead to what is needed for the woodpecker to survive. The nerve and muscle coordination, a tough beak, a heavy-duty skull, and shock-absorbing tissue. The argument is if evolution works one step at a time through natural selection and random mutations, which part of a woodpecker came first? If it had a tough bill and bashed into a tree, the skull would be destroyed. If it had only a strong skull, then the bill would be destroyed. The bird dies, and it's the end of the evolutionary story. The tough bill and heavy-duty skull and other characteristics needed would have no functional survival value until it occurred together. If natural selection is a blind watchmaker, as Dawkins puts it, how do these two things depend on one another, compound traits, come about? He went on to say that this is the same for the bombardier beetle and the human eye. I guess my question is, have you ever heard these arguments? Is this just bad science? And does irreducible complexity have any ground in promoting intelligent design over evolution through time, chance, and the struggle for survival? I really have no opinion on this. I guess I'm just really confused. Hope this makes sense. Thanks. It absolutely does make sense, and I've absolutely heard those arguments before. It's interesting that your professor used eyes for an example because uh, eyes might be one of the best pieces of evidence we have for Darwinian evolution via natural selection. First of all, let's be clear. Evolution does not wipe out traits that aren't directly beneficial to survival. If a mutation is benign, natural selection has no problem letting it continue in the species. If the effect is a slight negative that doesn't prevent the organism from reproducing, natural selection lets it continue. So already your professor is assigning more intent to natural selection than exists. Natural selection is a, more of a force. It's not a guiding hand. It doesn't have intent uh, any more than gravity has intent. It's a, it's a natural process. Uh, and let's look at eyes, for example. We look at an eye, and it's so complex, and we say, it has all these pieces that work together. It has a lens, it has a retina that attached to an optic nerve that then goes to very sophisticated neurological hardware, and any one of these pieces seems useless on its own. So how could evolution blindly create something like that? But what's funny is when you look at eyes in the animal kingdom today, even without fossils, they mirror the branches of evolution perfectly. For example, compound eyes only appear in invertebrates, mainly arthropods, insects and and spiders and the like. And they work really well for small bodied creatures, but one invertebrate has a complex camera eye like ours that you have a retina and a lens and eye muscles that can move and all those sorts of functions. But interestingly enough, that eye has the same photoreceptors that are found in compound eyes, the photoreceptors of invertebrates. Very interesting. And if you look at um, vertebrates, vertebrates when they have eyes have camera eyes, but only jawed vertebrates have rods and cones like humans have. And so when you look at these common features of organisms, eyes mirror evolutionary development, even without looking at fossils or DNA. But that's not the whole picture. And if you kind of roll the clock back and, and uh, look at evolution and look at the fossil record, we, can, we have a, a pretty good idea of how this happened. Every animal that has skin at least almost every, there may be some exception I'm not thinking of, but every animal I can think of in research that has skin is sensitive to light already. At least infrared light, we can detect heat. And if you look at certain types of flatworms and and roundworms, they can have eye spots that are sensitive to a broader spectrum of light. But they don't form images like our eyes do. They simply give them some sense of light and dark And in more sophisticated animals, then contribute to our circadian rhythms, the the biological rhythms of day and night. And having an innate biochemical awareness of day and night can help you even accidentally avoid predation. So for most of uh, evolutionary history, eyes were not things that made images. They were simply features that fed these feedback loops in organisms. Now, we can even see those heritage in humans. Our eyes don't just pipe into our visual cortex. Smaller bits of nerve endings go to other parts of the brain. and can even lead to a phenomenon called blind sight and, and neurologically blind persons. These are people whose eyes work fine, but their brain, for one reason or another, does not produce visual images. In some trials, people who are neurologically blind will flinch if uh, a graphic on a computer screen is moved quickly by their face, completely unaware that they've done so, or when showed simplified images of faces and asked to report their mood, they will report a mood similar to the image displayed on the screen, even though they're unaware that they are seeing anything. Isn't that interesting? That pays homage to eyes that at first were not primarily image-seeking Systems. Now we can see, you know, if you go back 600 million years ago, you have eyes kind of similar to a, a hagfish, probably, that have multi-layered retinas and uh, have primitive openings, uh, but don't actually form images. They, they they don't give it animal sight, but are still linked to survival through circadian rhythms. And then at some point, you get a little more sophisticated through a mutation, an opening, and now you have camera obscura and a retina. Now you have an eye with the capacity to see vision, but it may not be attached to a brain that can do anything with it yet, but it didn't cost any extra calories. It doesn't negatively affect reproductive strategies, and so that eye may have hitched a ride on organisms long enough for brains to make use of that data through other mutations. The brains got bigger and started to truly see As much as we look at an eye as a complete system and think, oh, wow, that could only be done by intelligence, our eyes are actually pretty terribly designed. (laughs) Uh, An engineer who made a human eye would probably get fired. We have really serious focus issues. Try to read something, you know, only a few centimeters from your eye. You can't. It's very blurred. Uh, And that probably is due to the fact that our eyes originally evolved in aquatic environments and then had to adapt with their own lenses to seeing in a, a gaseous atmosphere. Our retinas are inside out with fleshy tissue and blood vessels uh, that sit between the environment and our, our rods and cones. Uh, now, that actually aids our ability to see some frequencies of light, uh, but ultimately is a net negative on our, our visual system. And we have big blind spots where our optic nerves connect, and that's not an ine- inevitable feature of biological eyes. Because the compound, or excuse me, the camera eyes in invertebrates like squid and octopus, uh, octopi, don't have that issue. They don't have blind spots like we do. And all that speaks to an eye that emerged via incremental changes, just like a set of unrelated features that don't carry a net penalty or carried some unrelated survival advantage in woodpeckers can produce that stunning, coordinated survival niche. Uh, Now, there's another factor at play here called co-evolution, where species evolve together for mutual benefit. And that brings me to the gas in the engine of evolution. And that's incredible time periods. Life has been on this planet for an unfathomable number of years. Our intuition is not prepared to deal with tens of millions, hundreds of billions, and billions of years, but math is. And there are mathematically plausible mechanisms to describe how random mutation in conjunction with natural selection can produce even complex features like the human visual system. Our next question is an email question. It reads, Science Mike, big, smiley, grinny face emoticon. Can you help me with something? I grew up in a conservative evangelical home, and I heard the typical stance against evolution in favor of creationism or at the very least intelligent design. The typical area of agreement, though, came in the distinction between micro and macro evolution. My family had no problem conceding micro-level evolution as a viable facet of creation. The macro part was always the contention. However, during my college career, I came to be persuaded by theistic evolution. The data seems to be there, and I see no contradiction with Genesis 1-3 through and evolution. But my friend showed me a video on YouTube the other day from world-renowned organic chemist, Dr. James Tour from Rice University. In this video, Tor mentioned that microevolution was a provable fact from his point of view, but he can't honestly see how it extrapolates into the area of macroevolution, no matter how much time a cell could be given in order to change due to its environment. The mechanics just aren't there. And as a scientist who is continually working in the area of organic chemistry and nanotechnology, it seems he would genuinely have a valid interpretation of the evidence. I am trained as a biblical scholar and a theologian, not so much in the realm of science. You have always helped me think through these issues, so can you help explain this? I'm always trying to get a better grasp on the details of evolution myself, as well as help others who have trouble with these issues. As always, you are doing great stuff. Keep up the good work. Well, I am neither biblical scholar, theologian, nor trained scientist, but I will share with you my understanding of the situation regardless. First of all, James Torr is undoubtedly more educated about science than I am, but there are also lots of other scientists just as educated with James Tor who disagree with his interpretation of micro versus macroevolution, and in fact, there's really no way around the fact that the present consensus in scientists who specialize in evolutionary biology or even in the biological sciences is that evolution happens, including macroevolution. And I'm going to try to make this really simple because that's frankly what I love to do, to take complex things and make them simple and understandable without losing the fidelity or importance of the theoretical model. So let's first look at microevolution. All microevolution is mutation drives changes, in a population of related organisms, typically a single species. So a beetle who is dark green that is uh, in a forest that due to weather changes becomes more light green, that beetle might mutate and become a light, lighter shade of green, and that population of beetles will suddenly be a, a much lighter green. That's microevolution. Almost everybody agrees it happens, and the people that don't agree that it happens, I guess, just don't pay attention to the world and science at all. Macroevolution, on the other hand, is the production of new species, right? Where you have so much genetic difference that uh, a new species emerges. And as you said in your questions, there's a lot of Christians that accept microevolution but not macroevolution. It doesn't make any sense to me, and here's why. Macroevolution is microevolution done over and over. That's it. And this comes down to a common misnomer in how evolution works. Species don't just change suddenly into another unrelated species, it's a gradual drift that occurs over long periods of time. It's not that you just one day had Homo sapiens that were different than their ancestor. It's that a population over time drifted into what we call Homo sapiens today. Think of it this way. If microevolution happens, how would two populations, say of squirrels, who were suddenly separated, say we we got a million squirrels, we captured a million squirrels, and we divided them into two populations Of 500,000 and we released one population in Mexico and the other population in Spain over hundreds of thousands of years those populations of squirrel would adapt to different environmental contexts through mutation and everyone agrees that happens but what now that these squirrels are suddenly separated What keeps their DNA in sync enough to keep them reproducing together if they don't reproduce with each other anymore? If after 2 million years, we took squirrels from each of these populations who were once one population and put them together, reunited them in a zoo, how would their DNA have stayed similar enough to allow them to breed? That's the dividing line in species, by the way. The ability to reproduce and create viable offspring, and you need very similar DNA for that process to work. If you're telling me that over billions of years, you don't believe there would ever be enough drift in those two populations to prevent them from breeding again, I want you to explain to me what would stop that from happening. What mechanism is holding species as species? Because mutation is just a little drift in information. That's all it is. And as it keeps happening, it keeps drifting. There's no fence that keeps one species one species. There's no mechanism. I've never heard someone give me a scientific explanation for what allows microevolution but prevents macroevolution because there is no difference in what's happening at the molecular level. There is no difference in what's happening with the DNA. So to me, the question is not, how do you validate macroevolution the question for me is how do you accept microevolution but reject macroevolution when they rely on the same mechanism
1: hi science mike this is luke from minnesota calling uh been reading Sin- simon conway morris's work uh, on convergence and evolution and honestly, understanding about 56 to 57% of it. Uh, but he talks quite a bit about this idea that evolution might be actually headed somewhere, uh, that maybe the, perhaps there's signs of, um, purpose. So, uh, I guess that's my question is, do you think that
0: there's maybe it's that Omega point concept? uh, is evolution going somewhere? And if so, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Just a small question. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, Conway is a legitimate scientist who does real work at a real academic institution. He's not some um, shill. He's not you know somebody with a nothing but a religious agenda. He, he does real science. And his work uh, I have studied comes down to this idea of convergence, which is the idea that for some reason similar traits emerge in species that have independent branches in the tree of life. So, for example, squids and vertebrates independently developed complex camera Style eyes and arctic creatures from independent evolutionary branches uh, all have adapted to have, you know, white feathers or fur in heavy snow drifts together independently. Uh, Doesn't this seem like, you know, evolution is through natural selection favoring certain survival strategies and certain ecological niches? Well, absolutely, it does. (laughs) Compound eyes and camera eyes. Are two separate things. Uh, what I mean is, complex camera eyes certainly have emerged uh, independently via evolution, uh, with some differences, but still, it's it's a remarkable coincidence. So we can't get past the idea that somehow natural selection on Earth really does favor particular survival strategies. Conway and and other people in uh, his camp present this as evidence that there is a God driving evolution. And I'm sympathetic to that idea, but I also have to understand or acknowledge that many scientists disagree with that assessment. Convergence is not accepted by uh, much of the larger scientific community uh, and certainly not as uh, something that inevitably leads to humanity or, or hominids. As inevitable outcomes of evolution Because if you look at it Hominids, animals like us Are very, very new in evolutionary history And there have been several longer periods Of evolutionary development Between these mass extinction events These periods where most of the diversity of life On Earth has been wiped out That did not have anything resembling hominids Even though there were complex vertebrates in place You would expect that if there were some inevitable draw in evolution towards human-like life or intelligence, that maybe it would have emerged even in the age of the dinosaurs. Uh, But the thing is, we can't run evolution over and over like other experiments. This is a science where we're stuck with nothing but observation, looking at existing clues in nature, much, frankly, like cosmology. Now, if we think about this idea of the omega point, that's a a theoretical idea or a concept that says the universe is moving towards greater complexity and even towards consciousness. And that's a beautiful idea that uh, I often allude to poetically um, and may even be a part of my theology, but is not part of my physics. Because even though our planet keeps moving towards greater levels of complexity and the universe has for a time period produced localized pockets of order, there's no question at the largest scales that entropy rules the universe because life on Earth is fueled by a dying star. And when we look at galaxies today, they are much dimmer than the galaxies we can observe from the past, from earlier in the universe's history. The most recent data keeps validating the idea that the universe is slowly drifting towards an entropic heat death, a state in which, you know, there's an even distribution of energy and temperature. So where is God in all of that? You know, did God architect life and the universe in such a way that will automatically make humans or intelligence or something that God would call in the image of God? Is convergence a mechanism that drives evolution? Is this something that... uh, Points to God Well, people of faith, theistic evolutionists And people in Conway's camp Would say yes, absolutely uh, Secular scientists of course say That's extraordinarily unlikely And there's not enough evidence To make such an outrageous claim There's just not enough evidence To make that leap From the null hypothesis to convergence And an intelligent creator Where do I sit? Well those of you who listen to the show Probably can guess I don't know I don't know. I mean, I'm a mystic. <laughs> I get to say most of what I know about God is that I don't know very much about God. My approach is simply to look at the fascinating mechanism of evolution via natural selection and understand that amidst a universe drifting towards chaos, stars and galaxies and planets emerged and life showed up on at least one of those planets. And in time, led to me and now I get to sit here and ask questions and walk on cool autumn days and eat ice cream. I get to see when other people are hurting and see if I can help them. I get to talk to my daughters every day after school. Somehow I've been gifted not only with existence and life but the ability to be aware that I've been gifted with life. It's a remarkable blessing. So, whether God is working through evolution to convergence, to create consciousness inevitably, or whether somehow we bubbled out of a God that is more of an emanating force, (laughs) more of a deistic idea, either way, I am immensely grateful to be here. And either way, I'm going to do everything I can do to honor that incredible gift. Well, there goes a five-question episode of Ask Science Mike. I know that's longer than normal, but there were so many evolution questions. I wanted to answer as many as I could. Uh, I actually tried to arrange those in a way that they would cover more than the questions that have been asked and uh, use those answers to cover a lot of the other questions I've received. And I actually tried to arrange those questions in an order where the answers all work together to describe evolution in a larger scale. So hopefully that came through in an episode that uh, makes sense and is easy to follow. I've got a lot more events coming up to end out the year in 2015. Like I said, this week, this Thursday, I'll be with Forefront Church in New York. There may be a ticket or two left. I don't know. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click events, and you can see. You might be able to join me. Um, And then right after that, the next weekend, I'll be back in Tallahassee. At my church, Good Samaritan, Uh, we're having a Peacemakers Weekend. So I'll be talking Friday night and Saturday morning. We'll have some sessions about different ways of making peace in your life or in society. Then I'll give another talk about uh, how we engineer peace in society. I'll talk a little bit about advocacy and allies and why we fight so much and and how to fight less and actually make changes according to science. And then Sunday morning we'll gather uh, for a time of worship and that will be centered around peace. I've been in contact with folks who say they're coming and booking hotel rooms, and this is a completely free event. Uh, so if, if you'd like to come check out a Peacemakers Weekend at Good Samaritan, I'd love to see you there. The weekend after that, I'll be at the Sandbox Cooperative. That'll be an online event that you can be a part of no matter where you are. It'll be a live web streaming. I'll give a talk. We'll have a Q&A, including questions online. So if you've never been able to Come to an event, or you've never been able to do an Ask Science Mike live. Uh, your chance to ask me a question is coming up. All those are on AskScienceMike.com. Just click events up in the uh, in the header. The liturgist, myself, Michael Gunger, Lisa Gunger, Honey Badger's coming too. Uh, we're all getting on an airplane and flying to London this November for Belong. hundred thirty seats. Tickets are selling pretty well, so. Uh, I suspect this will sell out and probably even sell out in advance of the event. So if you're thinking about going, go to uh, click on Belong in the upper right-hand corner, and you can learn more about that event if you're interested. I've been talking to uh, Jim Chafee, who helps me with all my event booking, and we're going to put on an Ask Science Mike live tour early next year, you know, late winter, early spring time frame. Uh, we're picking cities, going to do at least five, maybe more, And I'd love to see you about that. Just keep listening to the show. There'll be lots of announcements there. But I do want to let you know that's coming. And yes, I hear you on Twitter. (laughs) I love the people uh, requesting that I come to specific cities. That's really cool. Uh, We need your questions. Keep them coming, especially questions from women. I'll always give preference to questions from women because there is such a male bias in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics And, uh, you know, I'm a feminist. That's how I roll. Uh, And, of course, our show is listener-supported. I do Ask Science Mike for a living, so you can help create these conversations. Uh, Every single dollar helps. Believe me, this is how I pay my mortgage and feed my kids. Uh, But there's no coercion. So you can change or cancel your pledge at any time. If money's tight, go ahead and lower that amount or cancel completely. I'll be fine. Uh, people who contribute to the show get all kind of perks that we're we're frankly reinventing uh, based on some great conversations with my patrons. And uh, Ask Science Mike will always be free. That's not gonna change. Now, uh, another way you can help the show is if you rate on iTunes, give me a five-star rating, four-star rating, whatever you think is appropriate. And then if you type a review, man, that ranks the show just skyrocket in the, in the ratings and the rankings on iTunes. Uh, i'll see really heavy downloads and subscriber growth and that does not move the needle like even two or three people leaving a review on itunes so feel like that that's a great way to help the show that costs nothing but a a couple of seconds and uh our show is produced by my good friend greg nordine uh who i hear so many compliments about the sound quality of the show so thank you for that greg and of course our theme song is by jeb botteford if you want really amazing music production for whatever you're working on. Uh, Jeb can do it. He can write music. He can record it. He can compose. He's a one-stop shop for everything you need in commercial music production. Thanks for listening, everybody, and
1: I will see you next week.